0: Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm really glad you're with us, but I think you will be too, because this is really a strong show. Every show is a strong show. What am I saying? But really hot topics. I'm going to be talking housing. We have a serious problem. If you're a regular listener, you know we've been chronicling it, but it's about to get worse. And I've got Dr. Mike P. Moffat joining me. I think he's the top person in academia talking about the housing shortages, the pressures that we on, possible solution, the miss, all of that coming your way. I think you're going to absolutely benefit from hearing him. Also, Lil Boutigre is with me. Uh, I love his work. He's the independent uh, speculator, uh, due diligence guy on Twitter. We're going to be talking about the global market potential recession, impact on commodities, and what he likes in that space. The two favorites, by the way, that he likes in the space. Plus, we've got Ozzy, we've got Victor, I've got Michael Levy talking about that uh, sovereign debt downgrade that Fitch just had in the U.S., and much more. But first, you know, I love celebrity, or celebrated, I should say, celebrated economist Thomas Sowell's famous quote, For short-term political gain, in order to make certain constituencies happy, in order to give people what they want with no sacrifice, we are willing to throw future generations under the bus. And I say, absolutely. So today, I'm going to give four examples that anyone who says, hey, I care about young people, that's a common thing to say, but if we're talking about your kids, I worry about my grandchildren too. Uh, You could be nieces, nephews, you name it. Better still, I think you should pass it on to every high school and university student. Every young person in the work world should know about this stuff. I'll give you the first example. Canada pension plan premiums and payouts. In a nutshell, as pension expert Greg Hurst stated, Canada pension plan represents a massive transfer of wealth from younger generations to older ones. How convenient that the older ones, by the way, make the rules. The point to understand, though, And sorry, I'm going to have to give you a couple numbers. But if someone age 25 was instead of being forced to contribute to the Canada Pension Plan, got to take those same mandatory contributions, but into a personal retirement plan, they would get several times more in monthly benefits than the current CPP payout. Plus, and this is a huge plus, they'd have a nest egg. You know, with today's Canada Pension, I pay in all my working life. I start collecting at some point. Well, I don't have a nest egg. When I die, that's really just about it. If instead it was my own personal pension plan, yeah, I'd have a huge nest egg. And I'll give you just one example. And this is one overlooked when you talk about investment. Uh, sorry, inflation stats. Mandatory Canada Pension Plan contributions. Are you ready? They've gone up 29.5% in the last three years and you're paying a bigger proportion of your paycheck. Now you pay just about 6% of your income up to about $66,000 as the max. That was 5.4%, 4 or 5% when you go back just a couple of years. But the maximum payout, no, it ain't up 29 and percent. It's up only 9%. So going back uh, you know, three years, you got $1,176 per month. Now you get $1,288 and no lump sum nest egg. But if instead, the mandatory contribution, now, if you're a worker, that mandatory is 3754 double if you're self-employed, but 3754 you put it into your own retirement account, starting at age 25, retired at age 65, and let's say it earned about 6% annually on average, which is under the average of the Toronto Stock Exchange rate in the same period. Maybe that's about eight to 9%. So I'm being conservative. And then you raise your contributions every year. You know, let's put it to the Bank of Canada's target of 2%. So it's just an example, and it's mind blowing. Your retirement account would be worth, you ready? Just under $10 million at the age of 65. Monthly payouts would be several times what it is today. In other words, young workers would be far better off. That's my point. Second example, you know, university uh, students are out there right now working in their summer jobs, some high school students also doing the same thing, you know, so many of them. Well, they're going to be paying employment insurance, even though when they have to stop work to go back to school, they can't collect it. So yeah, good. They play EI and they can't collect, it's just another tax on them. Maybe it could cost them like a thousand bucks in the summer. Third example, anytime we push policies that restrict economic growth and job creation or discourage businesses from investing, we're limiting the economic prospects for young people. The anti-business lobby is very powerful in Canada. I mean, it fills the ranks of the public sector unions. Uh, many non-government organizations, it dominates big environmental groups and as well, is well represented in Parliament, provincial legislatures and city councils. But none of them, let me underline that, not one of them can answer the straightforward question. How does discouraging capital investment and economic growth benefit our younger generation? You know, the numbers are getting scary. I mean, you probably saw this OECD forecasts that when you adjust for inflations, Canada's Real economy on a per capita basis will grow at the slowest rate compared to the other 18 OECD countries this decade and then right through to 2060. But here's the thing, you know, since 1981, Canada's GDP per capita has fallen from sixth in the world to 15th. You know, in 1981, Canada's in, Can, Canadians in general, let's talk about your standard of living enjoyed a $3,000 higher per capita standard of living than the major Western economies. 40 years later, we're 5,000 below, not 3,000 above, 5,000 below that same average. You know what? They say if the trend continues, we'll be down about 18,000 by 2060. Now, I won't be around for that, but you get the point. I mean, it's all about a lower standard of living, lower salaries, fewer job opportunities. So tell me who benefits the younger people from these pro, uh, policies that discourage capital investment, productivity and economic growth. And finally, just one more. this is the one you're well familiar with. Young generation is going to be responsible for unfunded liabilities for both health care and public sector pensions, along with the massive provincial and federal record debt load, that we're leaving them. Does anyone really think that's to their benefit? Do we think that our children are going to have the same level of health care, for example, that we enjoyed? given we're already having problems with sustainability? Well, I think most Canadians found that. I mean, Pew Research found that 75% of Canadians think that the younger generation is going to be worse off than we are. Now, luckily for government and the establishment, the younger generation seems well not to understand what's going on and disengage for a lot of reasons but right at the top is the fact that the vast majority graduate from high school then go on through the university and college without even a rudimentary understanding of economics and finance you know what i think that ju- that suits the status quo just fine because if they ever figured out what we've been doing look out and you know what i'd be there to cheer them on <laughs> Well, regular listeners to this podcast and radio show know that uh, housing, I think, is a a massive issue and about to get uh, more extreme, more emotional, more challenges facing this country. That's why I'm so pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Mike P. Moffitt. He's founding director of the Place Centre. He's also, you know, university (laughs) assistant professor. So many other things that he's done. But here's the main thing. I think he's done the best work in this country on what's going on in the housing markets, the challenges there, the myths, uh, any possible solutions that we have there. Dr. Moffat, thanks so much for finding time for us.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, let's start with, I mean, one of the things that worries me is this has become a very emotionally charged issue. I think it's going to get worse there. Maybe just sum up what you see the challenges are.
1: Well, I, I think the biggest challenge is just not enough housing, that the population is growing faster than our our housing stock, um, which is causing all kinds of issues. So uh, our population of international students is, is growing. I used to be an international student. I am pro-international students. But what, what happens is when you don't build enough student housing, uh, you start to see investors buying up uh single-family homes and turning them into student rentals which is completely understandable again international students need somewhere to live but that makes it difficult for first-time home buyers when you have entire neighborhoods you know getting turned Mm -hmm. into uh student neighborhoods The, the neighborhood i grew up in in london ontario uh is becoming one of those neighborhoods and that's causing things to become emotionally charged um you know i as you mentioned uh, I teach at a university. I've done so for the last 16 years and I teach nothing but a fourth year undergraduate. So I've spent the last 16 years hanging out with 22 and 23 year olds and this cohort is ready to burn down the system in a way that I haven't seen in my my 16 years in the profession. you know they, they they're angry, they believe that they'll never be able to to own a home and they believe that, governments at all levels or all orders of governments are acting in somebody else's interest and not theirs.
0: Such an important point you're making. And because that is my worry is I think the societal impact, exactly as you say, I mean, when people can't find shelter and we look at the rents, I mean, I'm still blown away every month when I look at something like, you know, rents.ca or something and shows me the average price. I am. I'm blown away because those are after-tax dollars, and you th- and I I'm one of those people. I'm lucky. I'm I'm not renting, but I sit back and I go, how is pe- how are people affording this? You know, young families or or anyone needing rental. I shouldn't have said that just that way, but you add on that the work visa issue. You know, uh, the new immigration numbers. Uh, and they're not all the same thing and i want people to be clear i mean i'm i'm with you i am totally in favor of immigration obviously with an aging population uh with a pension system that relies on more people entering the workforce you know all of that stuff but i'm astounding they astounded they have done these things with any foresight about where are people going to live it's not like some esoteric deep thought <laughs> when people come as you say whether it's an international student or someone on a work visa or immigrating to our country. uh, They got to live somewhere. And I don't sense that there was much thought given at all about that.
1: Yeah. And I think that's actually the core of the issue. Because one of the big questions people have for me, is like, well, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't the market respond to this, right? Shouldn't there be some elasticity? And I I think part of that challenge is that we haven't allowed the market to respond because we've made these decisions so rapidly and without much planning. So, you know, if we look at immigration, so this is permanent residency. you know, the, the government will announce in November the target for the next year. <laughs> well, how are you supposed, you know, if they decide to increase it by 25, 30,000 or whatever, they decide to increase it by, you know, how are city councils supposed to respond to that? How are apartment builders supposed to respond to that? You know, by the time, they get shovels in the ground and approvals and so on you're looking you're looking five to ten years out so if we had a, a more same system for lack of a better word you know we would have these targets given five or ten years in advance go okay this is you know in 2023 this is what we want things to be in 2028 then that way you know city councils and provinces and builders could work up to that you know you recognize that there's always government change and governments might change direction so there's always political risk but that would be a way to go about it and then we look at the other um the other forms of population growth and that's things like international students this is temporary foreign workers there it's even more uncontrolled because there's no target there's no limit mm. it's not like immigration and say okay we we are setting a target for 300,000 or 400,000 international students there, it's more of a yes/no, where we allow the colleges and universities to decide how many, uh, how much they're going to increase enrollment, and the, the the federal government has basically just given sort of a yes/no of like, okay, yeah, you, you you meet the criteria, you can come in, you can. You know, so it's all dependent on you know other orders of government or uh, the higher education system. So there's this complete lack of coordination, and it's made it impossible for. Uh, builders and cities to to react quickly enough because we all know you're you're not going to build a home overnight. So it's that lack of coordination I think is at the center of most of our
0: problems. Astounding that we've been talking about issues. In this case, it's uh, affordable rents we could be talking about, but affordable housing is, is like the standard that politicians love to talk about, then turn around and do things that will do anything but create affordable housing. Uh, I'm talking now at municipal levels and, uh, you know, and not all provinces are the same, but if you went out to British Columbia, you got a property purchase tax that is onerous, tens of thousands of dollars. Why? Because you bought a home, Holy smokes, uh, you know, on that. The list is really a long one, though. You know, uh, regulations, uh, we had uh, a report out. Again, I'm looking at the Vancouver area just for a second, but looking at the report of what government adds to the cost of a new condo, and it was 20%, 25% of the cost, you know, because it might be zoning restrictions. CD Howe did one, a report uh, very recently, a month ago or so, but talking about that restrictions on housing actually increased the price of houses because you couldn't increase supply. With this demand coming in, I mean it's all over the map. But I mean, and again, I'm not trying to put words in your oath. I can't think of a bigger F I would put on our three levels of government if we were grading them.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a fair comment. That because you're right, the governments want affordable housing, and they want you know both both the market and you know social housing providers to keep housing affordable. But then there's all of these things that they do to push costs up, and they. Uh, so here in Ontario, you know, we have, uh, you know, land transfer taxes, it's kind of the Mm -hmm. same idea. We have very high development charges, particularly on apartments. You know, we say, okay, we want more rental apartments, but, uh, development charges tend to be high on that as, as well as property taxes. You know, there's a variety of different regulations. So we might have, you know, in cities, you have minimum lot sizes. So it's like, well, okay, land is expensive. And you're saying, okay, every every home has to have a minimum amount of land, regardless of whether or not mm-hmm. it needs it, that's going to push those costs up. So yeah, you get this kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth, where it's like, on the one hand, they say, okay, you've got to keep things affordable, you got to keep costs down. But then on the other hand, you, know, you just layer in taxes and regulations that all push the cost back up. It's You know, it is this lack of policy coherence and not just between orders of government, but within the same government.
0: Uh, Your point about the immigration targets or lack of even a target for a student visa or a work visa, uh, you know, it's so important. But I'm still astounded that they've been talking about this stuff for 10 years or 20 years. You know, it's a huge timeline getting worse all the time. No coordination between three levels, but no coordination even in the, the, the stats for immigration or, as, I, as you say, uh, like the student visa, for example. When I get a student visa, is it just simply restricted to me? Because I know at times it used to be I could bring family members in. So it wasn't just the number of student visas we had to house.
1: Yeah so there are there are programs uh for for people to bring in family members. So it's so it's not necessarily automatic but uh but that does that does happen. Um and we should recognize that on a student visa you know that will also allow um after graduation for them to stay up to 3 years in a postgraduate work permit program. And I actually think there's a lot of sense to this. You know the genesis of this actually goes goes back to the Harper government. And I actually think the, the core idea is incredibly sensible. The core, core idea is this, that we've always had problems in this country with foreign credential recognition, right? We, if somebody immigrates over mm-hmm. from some school we've never heard of and, and employers are like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. And you no, know, they haven't had much experience on the ground. So the government basically came up with this idea. It's like, well, instead of having people come over at age 28 or 29, why not have them come over at 18? And then they can they can go to a UBC or a Conestoga College, what have you, mm-hmm. get their degree, get their diploma, get three years of Canadian work experience, then get permanent residency. I actually think that's really smart. But like mo- a lot of things that government does, the, the, the fall down is on the implementation side. Right. So it's at its core a fantastic idea, but we haven't really thought through. It's like, OK, well, if we're bringing in people 10 years earlier, what does that mean for our housing needs and also what does it mean when you know we're bringing in eight or nine hundred thousand international students but we've only got five hundred thousand immigration uh spots that means a lot of people who are coming over are expecting to get permanent residency someday Mm -hmm. and and may not get it so it's, it's not great for the students and it's not necessarily great for us it just comes back to that classic government problem of good idea Fall downs on the implementation uh,
0: lots of examples of that also, <laughs> but let me come to uh, does anything jump out when I ask what 's the myth regarding this whole issue of uh, you know obviously the supply isn't meeting the demand we've got more demand coming, and we saw the 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 new housing minister. Uh, you know, talk this week, well, I'm not going to change any of our targets that way, you know, <laughs> I mean, so okay, the problem's going to get worse, because there's nobody saying we're building enough at this, you know, whether it's CMHC, or, uh, you know, TD Bank's done studies, other banks have done it, you know, nobody's building enough. So this is only going to get worse. But uh, are there any myths when we look towards solutions or the problem that just jump away at you when you read it, and you sort of go, oh, my gosh, you know, your eyes are rolling? <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I feel like some of these myths are are getting burst over time. That that reality is smacking our, our us in the face a little bit. So you know, if we were having this discussion two or three years ago, that people would say, "Well, no, it's not a supply problem. It's uh, it's a we we just have you know millions and millions of vacant homes." And you know, we never the data never really supported that. But we've done things like like here in Ottawa, where I am. You know, we've we've imposed uh, vacant home tax. And actually, I think, uh, you know, in In
0: Vancouver, too, in Vancouver, too.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I I think you guys were first. And that just kind of propagated across the country. Didn't really accomplish much. Um, So there was that one. Um, There was the one during the pandemic where, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, things are bananas now. But that's just because of low interest rates. And once the interest rates go back up, everything will be fixed. And I don't want to downplay the role of interest rates. Because absolutely, interest rates played a role in, in price escalation, at least on the ownership side. But we got the high interest rates now, but I'm not seeing much in the way of uh, cost savings. And I'm mm-hmm. just a little bit better. My mortgage just renewed and went up about 1400 bucks a month. So this wow. is... yeah, yeah this is, and, and for me, and this was a mortgage from 2019, I, I didn't even get the low interest rates during the pandemic. This was just a four-year that flipped over, four-year fixed. So... You know, I, I think there was that idea that, you know, oh, this is just this is just greedy investors or that kind of thing. But, you know, if you look across the country, you know, it's like prices aren't going up that much in Manitoba and they're going up a lot in southwestern Ontario. Are people in London, Ontario, really that much greedier than people in Winnipeg? <laughs> you know, is that is that the sort of issue? Or might it be that that London, Ontario's population is growing quickly and Winnipeg's isn't? So, so I think, you know, once you start digging into this data, of that a lot of these stories that we've been hearing for years that, oh, it's just this one thing, and if we correct that thing, everything will be fine, have turned out not to be the case.
0: Well, and and let's look to solutions at this point. I mean, first of all, obviously, there's not going to be any easy solutions, you know. And this is a problem that I'm reading about, though, in other jurisdictions, too, outside of our country, you know, maybe not the same causes. I don't know. You know, I follow more our immigration, our student visas, our work visas closer than I do anything going on in the UK, for example, although they've just had a huge drop in their uh, housing prices, at least, you know. But again, and I'm I'm also focused on rentals, though. The unaffordability, unavailability of rentals, because that's when I think you really get social uh, upheaval. And, and that's dangerous for us. Uh, is it as straightforward as saying on the very short term, we should restrict the number of visas, restrict the, the amount of immigration or something along that? Because there's just no way supply is going to it's bad enough now. It's just going to get worse.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I, I think we need to take a, I would call a three track strategy. So mm-hmm. on, the, on the first track would be on the demand side. So I do think we should scale back on on international students and just allow that that growth. And actually, to be honest, I think that would be worth doing even if it didn't have much of a housing impact because I'm worried that this might be in fact a bit of a bubble. And when it bursts, you might have a bunch mm-hmm. of colleges and universities go solvent. So I don't think it's fantastic that, Our higher education system has become so reliant on a single source of revenue, which could disappear overnight. So I think we need to do things on the demand side. We need to be doing far more on the supply side. And that's all three orders of government. So, you know, that's that's things like zoning and the approvals process. Here in Ontario, we had a, a task force report that the Ford government put together with 55 recommendations that were really quite good. Government's implemented some, but there's a whole lot more to go. And then on the federal side, there's actually a lot, despite what we might have heard from the prime minister this week, there's a lot that's in uh, the federal uh, mandate. So one example would be back in the 1960s, uh, we had, uh, this is actually probably the right audience for this this discussion, um, we had some really nice provisions in the tax code for people who built apartments, mm-hmm. sure. like, yeah. So, so basically what it was an accelerated capital cost allowance. So you build an apartment building and you got to depreciate that faster on your taxes. And then the really nice thing is you got to keep the benefits of that depreciation after you sold, so long as you reinvested the proceeds in a new building. So what would happen would be developers would build a big, Tower, And you go to any city and you see those big concrete towers from the 60s. They were built with these provisions. You build a tower, own it, run it for about three to four years, and then flip it, build another one. We got a lot of apartment buildings built that way. So that's something the federal government can do is just reintroduce some 2023 version of that. That would get a lot of shovels in the ground. So I think those three things, you know, looking at the demand. Oh, and I haven't said the third. And I think the third is actually just giving more cash benefits to low income house households, mm-hmm. um, help them help them pay the rent because they're just you know you look at food bank lines and homelessness, like every every all of those social indicators are just moving in the wrong direction, and we need to we need to help people out. So a demand side fix, a supply side fix extra cash, and then just having all three orders of government just working together and actually coordinating, I think that would, would go a long way to start, start to address it
0: if i ask you to put a probability on you know that happening uh, see my observation is uh, i think those are great suggestions and, and and so necessary god how many times have i said the three levels of government got to work together you know and it hasn't it hasn't happened in a meaningful way and as you say this week the prime minister decided after running on affordable housing you know for 8 years well that's not really a I'm sorry, I can't say it with a straight face. It's not, you know, a, a federal responsibility. I thought that wasn't very promising. Uh, you know, some of the ideas that really worry me that are coming out, you know, the, the new, I forget what they call, housing advocate at the federal level says, let rent control. Well, you know what? That's failed every, everywhere that's been tried for rental housing. Gonna, and that will discourage supply. And I'm worried a whole bunch of bad ideas are going to come because this problem is going to be exacerbated, intensified you know, because we know the numbers coming in, or we don't know this, as you pointed out, and it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, so don't. important. We don't know the visa, number, the student <laughs> visa coming in, worker visa, but we know the immigration targets. Uh, you know, I, I'm just sort of at the stage where I'm throwing up my hands.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that that is a concern. And we've, we've seen that before, like some of the um, the, the the foreign buyers regulations that were put in by the federal government. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden those had to be clawed back because you had a bunch of apartment investors saying, well, look, now I can't, I can't get foreign investment in it. Like I can't, I can't raise capital because you know, I had this money coming in from Italy or wherever to do this hybrid, uh, uh, you know, apartment building that had first floor commercial. And now I can't do it anymore because of these, these regs. So, yeah, I, I do uh, worry about that. You know, we have here in Ontario, we have rent control and, you know, rents in my hometown of London, Ontario, still went up 25 percent a year because rent control doesn't do anything. Like if you're a, a new student coming in, right, like, like the idea of rent control is that it protects the uh, renter who already lives in the place. But in you know, Ontario, we have a very transient population of you know people moving around and and you know new students coming in. So it doesn't really help them at all. So I am concerned that you know we may land on some bad solutions. But I actually do think there is some optimism. I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if the government moves on something like the accelerated capital cost allowance idea. We've had uh, Premier Ford here in Ontario talk, uh, ask the federal government to re- remove the GST on new rental construction. I think that's a good idea, and I think that may end up uh, may end up happening. So, you know, I do have some optimism. Um, but you know, the, the, I think we have two questions. Like, one, will they do the the right solutions, and then two, will these solutions fall down on the implementation side?
0: Yeah, and again, uh, can they? I mean, we've waited so long. To talk, uh, not to talk about, to handle this problem. We've had the immigration numbers on just the recent ones, you know, for three years, and then we broke those records too. You know, we've known the problem of the demand coming out of student uh, student visas, as an example. It, none of this is a surprise, and they've taken so long. So my work, I, I, I'm with you. I can be, I, I think they're going to be forced into some things, and provincially they'll handle it, I think, sooner than federally, but they'll be forced into some things. But the pain in the meantime, is going to be extreme I mean we're going to we are approaching extremes right now when you read about bringing in new people into the country and they've got no place to live and they're on the streets in some places you know uh, the tent cities that have uh, exploded in many centers uh, mm-hmm. you know across the country etc cetera, etc cetera. it's not like we're not seeing the ramifications of not having uh, a more practical policy approach to this multifaceted challenge uh so, yeah, I, I'm with you. I I think there is optimism. There are things, there's some good solutions being pre- presented. I just don't have a lot of faith uh, that we're not going to have a real problem. That's going to force those solutions.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I find that lost time uh, frustrating because we could, let, let's say either the provincial government here in Ontario decided that it wanted to limit international student enrollment or the federal government decided it would limit it by by limiting visas that really doesn't do anything for us until summer of 2024, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because of, of, you know, the, the, the university and college cycle. Right. So, so the fact that we didn't act a few months ago when we could have, uh, I, I think is highly problematic. So yeah, I would absolutely agree that like, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're moving in the right direction, but this, this amount of time we've lost over the last few years is just made this hole like so much larger to get out of than than it really needed to be.
0: And I think, uh, you know, the public needs to be informed, needs to be part of this conversation. And that's why uh, I highly recommend that they check uh, Mike P. Moffitt on Twitter, at Mike P. Moffat capital M, capital P, capital M, <laughs> on Twitter. And, and uh, again, the links you do to f- research and the work you're doing, the thoughts you have, I think is just really a valuable contribution to this, I think, essential discussion. Uh, So, Mike, thanks so much for finding time to us. And I I already want to put you on the hook. We got to visit again in the near future. Obviously a huge subject. We got to touch on it.
1: Yeah, anytime. Always uh, happy to chat.
0: Well, big news south of the border, but anytime you talk south of the border, obviously uh, big things are happening, influencing Canada, influencing the global market, in this case, especially when you're talking about debt. Well, it got front and center again. I wonder, when did they have that debt ceiling kind of argument? It was through May and into June. Well, it's front and center again because Fitch Rating Service has downgraded U.S. government debt. Big-time stuff from AAA to AA+. But it's more the message that that sends, I think, that's got people's attention. I'm going to bring Michael Levy in for that. Mike, I think it did catch a lot of people by surprise. It's not the debt situation is a serious issue in the States, but it's like they got a downgrade. You know, the world's
2: most dominant global bond market, you know, was downgraded, is bottom line. And when you look into it, Mike, and you're right, there were so many critics also that said the U.S., didn't have to be downgraded. It wasn't necessary at this time. But what Fitch is looking at, and I don't think that the average uh, person who reads about it, and even those that have some knowledge about it, are realizing what Fitch is saying it's governance of debt. Yeah. The governance was, to me, the key word. Yeah, that's a great point. And then what they're saying is they didn't have
0: confidence that the way the dysfunction in the U.S. federal government, you know, Republicans, Democrats, look at the wrangling over the debt ceiling. I, yeah, I think you're making a great point there, Mike, that they're coming back and they're saying, we actually don't believe you can get this, this a- under control. I'll give you just one of their numbers right. that, that they're going to have to deal with. And so, you know, you go back in May, they said the – Borrowing in the you know in the third quarter between uh, July and September was going to be seven hundred and thirty-three billion dollars. Well, now it looks like a trillion. Come on, that was two months ago. They had that projection or three months ago, and and they're saying they just don't believe that the governance you know the way these political parties cannot work together for the most part um, doesn't
2: give them confidence they're going to get this under control. A- absolutely. So it's not being downgraded from AAA to AA plus. It doesn't really make that much difference to the value of U.S. treasuries. But the other thing that I read into this, what Fitch is worried about, and it goes hand in hand with governance, Mike, is they're on the brink of default. Now, not default financially, but default politically to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And you are looking at debt ceiling dates that are going to come. And if the House cannot agree, then you're, you're looking risk of default. And even if a default is a couple of days, it's not catastrophic, but it is a gut punch because the world relies on U.S. treasuries. They are the gold, the platinum, the standard, and they can't waver as far as the confidence that the buyers of treasuries u.s treasuries have and that's globally
0: yeah and i agree with you saying that it's not going to have an impact short term but it's the message i think was more important whether they got the downgrade or not putting it on the radar i mean i'll tell you i got a couple of figures here mike that blew me away the deficit for the u.s in the first nine months the fis- uh, fiscal year first nine other fiscal year was 1.39 trillion so let's say 1.4 trillion you know what that was up 169% from the same period last year, 169%. Then you got interest on the debt. Uh, you know, they're projecting. Uh, well, st- hit-
2: stop yeah. right there. Interest. Let's talk yeah. about that because that is one of the impacting things. Look at the interest last year and look at the interest this year on the debt. Yeah. So here's the number that jumped out at me, though. So
0: $663 billion at this stage on the debt, maybe higher. You know what? that's nearly 200 billion more than all of their corporate tax revenue. Eat it up just with interest alone, you know, bang. So I, I mean, as I say, I don't know whether they should have been downgraded or not. You know, I I agree with you. The impact's going to be minor, especially in the trading markets. There's not a lot of alternatives and it is so dominant, but at the same time, I think it is a good thing that it's brought to people's attention that they're talking about it because it's sure not popular, uh, you know, politically to say, I think we better cut something. I mean, I don't care if you're in Canada. I don't care if you're in the States and Europe. Governments don't, and, and I'm seeing opposition and in, in government, they don't want to talk about cuts. The public doesn't like it. The media doesn't understand or like it, one or the other. They always talk about, you know, Armageddon's coming if you reduce the rate of increase in spending. That's what killed me. They're not yeah. cutting anything. It's the rate of increase. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with Fitch in this way. I don't see any sign. I hope it,
2: it it doesn't continue, but I don't see any sign they can handle this. And, and the other rating services, by the way, Mike, agree with you is that it's not it, almost. It wasn't time for, or the, uh, the 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 scenario did not require a downgrade here. But I say good on Fitch for ringing the warning bell because that's what they're doing, and they've putting they're putting everybody on notice. And I want to bet we'll be talking about this
0: kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, sovereign <laughs> debt, the number one issue. We'll do more of that. Michael Levy, thanks, and have a great week. You too, Mike. Coming up, you're going to love this interview with Lobo Tigra. It's the independent speculator, a due diligence guy. But I mean, he's saying stuff like the Federal Reserve lies for a living. huh? He also said he's going to share his top commodity choices. And he's a commodity bull, but he sees, I think, reading his stuff, that he sees a recession coming first, a better buying opportunity. All of that, but you're going to love it. Stay with us. Time now for the quote of the week. The climate debate has been punctuated, this is an understatement, with talk of human extinction and other forecasts of catastrophe. You know, maybe I could sum it up by just simply saying, we're all going to die. Actually, calls for the end of humanity, though, amidst things like mass starvation or frying to death, are not new. I mean, come on, Thomas Malthus published his famous work in 1798 that said the food supply will never keep up with population growth. And then you get Paul Ehrlich, about 150 years later, kind of expanding on that, warning that resources couldn't sustain the population. I mean, dire predictions, which were then overshadowed by the litany of doomsday predictions about first global cooling, Then it was global warming, and now it's called climate change. But climate alarmism is perfect for the clickbait world of social media. Literally tens of thousands of climate catastrophe headlines, where it seems that every weather event is ultimately blamed on climate change, including the most recent variations that the world is burning with the wildfires. Now, this is despite, as Bjorn Longberg points out, Satellite data clearly shows that in 2022, the world burned the least ever in the satellite era, a record low of 2.2% burned area. But that brings me to the quote of the week. This is by Jim Shea. He's the new head of the United Nations International uh, Panel for Climate Change, the IPCC. Come on, that's the go-to source on climate change by advocates, including in the media. Although I doubt they're gonna wanna hear this advice because it represents an about-face in how we talk about the climate. In an interview with two German news outlets, he implored people to drop the alarmism in talking about the threat of climate change. In quotes, the world won't end if it warms by more than 1.5 degrees. If you constantly communicate the message that we're all doomed to extinction, then that paralyzes people and prevents them from taking the necessary steps to get a grip on climate change. End of quote. In other words, it's not only ineffective, it's counterproductive with all this alarmism, as are all the dire forecasts of apocalypse, which never quite turn out to happen, which undermines credibility, as does the de facto censorship of scientists who disagree with the -the over-the-top alarmism, along with the hypocrisy of elites who tell the public to cut back their lifestyle while doing nothing of the sort themselves. But this is the head of the IPCC whose advocates in politics in the media can't readily dismiss. And it's going to be interesting to see if they heed his advice to tone it down. Well, you know what? I'm not going to be holding my breath. You know, one of the things that uh, my friends and wife talk about is I don't have much of a life. I sit around and read, and I love to read people who know what they're talking about. And as you know, if you're a regular listener to Money Talks, I guess it was in February 2020, we ran a major conference called The Coming Bull Market and Commodities. Well, one of the people that I've enjoyed reading over the last couple of years is Louis James. He's founder, CEO of Louis James LLC, but he's the principal analyst and editor of The Independent Speculator, which you can find at www.independentspeculator.com. I'll tell you more about that coming up, but Lewis, thanks for finding time for us, much appreciated. So I wanna start with, you look at, uh, for example, right now, you're writing a lot about the demand and the reduction in demand uh, right around the world, and of course, the impact that will find on commodity prices.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, you say protection, I I think it's important to distinguish regular commodities from monetary metals. Mm -hmm. And in terms of people thinking of protecting themselves from the downside, you know, clearly monetary metals have a very different safe haven role than, you know, something like copper or oil, which can, will, and always has taken it on the chin if we go through the ringer. Um, So the the 30,000 foot view, Mike, is that I don't buy what Team Soft Landing is peddling. I think the U.S. labor market is much weaker than it appears. I think post-pandemic labor hoarding, amongst other factors, has greatly distorted the picture. And the, you know, it's funny you hear people, even Powell, saying things like, "Oh, we're in uncharted waters," and then they whip out their chart and say, "This, you know, we have the tools. This is what we're going to do." Right? <laughs> so I'm just. You know, I could be dead wrong. Team Software Landing certainly looks like they're winning right now. They're, they're out there running their victory laps, but I just don't buy it. And either I'll be right or they will, uh, I think, within months. We, we are at the point where either I'll have to concede that I got something seriously wrong or, you know, the, the, the scales will fall from their eyes soon. So that that's my view, and that being the view uh, it makes me much more inclined towards monetary metals or uh, say anything I can regard as a safe haven asset. Um, real estate counts, but it's less liquid. And it makes me much more, more cautious of things that even that I like on the commodity side, like oil, which has been demonized and starved for capital. That's actually very bullish for the price of oil and for the people that can actually produce the stuff. Uh, copper, similarly, everybody's, you know, this, this green agenda requires so much more copper than the world is producing. And yet, nobody wants to permit mines so you know there's, there's opportunities like that that i think are fantastic going forward but if i'm right and team software landing is wrong we go through the ringer first and that makes me very hesitant to get into you know energy minerals writ large or industrial metals that sort of thing right now well,
0: that's a great summation by the way i love that distinction between monetary metals and let's i'll call them industrial metals you know as you say that are going to be impacted directly you know demand for oil demand for copper you know, and other commodities that way. I think that's a very important distinction. Uh, But that is a fascinating debate when they they talk about, you know, is there going to be a soft landing? I'm not sure. There's been wishful thinking on that. The people who are presenting that, I don't think they have the best track record. I'm not trying to knock them, but, I mean, you know, it's a complicated business when you look at the overall economy uh, that way. But, I mean, I'm looking at the latest stuff coming out of Japan is worrisome, China is worrisome, if I'm talking about increasing demand you know, that uh, I don't see it coming from many of those areas. And as you say, uh, I think it's highly questionable and a lot of wishful thinking when (laughs) when I hear people talking about the U.S., you know, uh, the labor market doesn't look as strong. So I think that distinction you're making is a real key, and I hope everyone picked up on it there. And I know you make it in the independent speculator, but I think it's one that uh, needs to be applied when you're looking at all of the commodity markets.
3: Yeah, and... You know, I think perhaps you're being very gentlemanly and kind when you say uh, optimistic thinking. (laughs) You know, I I look at somebody like Janet Yellen who gets on TV and says, I see no reason to think that there might be a recession. Well, this is the person who saw no more crises in her lifetime. And guess what? She hasn't fallen on her sword. She's still there telling us about the things she doesn't see. Um, And to my mind, it beggars belief that any serious adult can take such a person seriously. This is a political hack saying what her boss tells her to say it has nothing to do with reality, in my view. So I'm willing to be a little bit less gentlemanly. Lobo, my, you know, it means wolf. So I'll, I'll bear my wolf fangs here and say I am just call BS on these people. And, and, and Powell, you know, appointed by a Republican, supposedly, you know, I, I, I think the central bank's head's job is to lie to the public, and I'm not just being inflammatory or throwing that out there. I mean it quite sincerely. I think they think that they have to say whatever they have to say to steer the ship of state right and to, you know, manage expectations, because in their worldview, everything is about confidence. You can't shake confidence or the con game comes down. So their job, I think, is quite literally to say what they think they have to say to get the economic results they think will be achieved by the jawbone. Uh, truthfulness has nothing to do with that. And and so I'm, I'm not just being insulting or whatever, I'm being literal. I think it's Powell's job to lie to the public and say whatever he thinks will help. Um, so I, I just, I'm, I'm a bit of a rant here, sorry, Mike. No. But I, I think it's important to understand that these sources um it not depend independent of your politics it wouldn't matter if i was a democrat or republican i would say the same thing these people cannot tell the truth and therefore what they say should be discounted well we had such
0: a great example when we're sitting there and and i'm proud to say on this this show we were talking about inflation a year before while they were still saying there was, you know, transitory. And I'm going, like, this is absurd. Keep in mind, they were still saying that November, early December of 2021. And think about the energy crisis that was happening already from, you know, arguably you could get an earlier date, but let's say September, where prices were skyrocketing in the UK. And I'm going, you know, and and I think your point, though, is a very important one for people to understand. It is a confidence game. And at that point, they wanted to make sure, or they they were going to say anything they could uh to tell people oh don't worry inflation's not going up in other words we won't have to raise interest rates on all the borrowing you know to get people involved like who the hell's right, going to lend right. the, lend the government money if inflation's at four and i'm getting one i i just think that's that's actually i think the key point in economics and finance today is it's all about confidence and why wouldn't people's confidence be shaken when you look around the world you look at different things they haven't solved the energy crisis whatsoever in fact I think they've done a good job in working to prove that they haven't learned anything from what happened in the previous year. (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm going on a rant now.
3: Does not the Fed have an unbroken track record of failing to predict any recessions? Like when have they ever predicted a recession? It's quite startling that they came close this time. You know, unlike, unlike the, in the the bank of England, which actually did call a recession, the Fed, um, the staff projection was for a mild recession this year and they've rolled that back. But even when the staff made that projection, the FOMC was having none of it. And Powell said, no, that's not the view of, it, of the committee, my view or any, you know. Mm-hmm. So he, he disavowed even that very mild and gentle slowdown uh, that the staff called for. So, I mean, it, that's, a, that's an unblemished track record, Mike. You know, like, uh, so it, it doesn't matter, again, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, anarchist, whatever. The, the track record says, you cannot and should not place any weight on what they say. So let's talk about what we should see instead of what they're saying. And I'm with you, as I said. Uh, No, but
0: I mean, uh, as your goal is with the independent speculator, for example, and uh, you're the due diligence guy on Twitter, uh, but the role is to protect people or help them uh, navigate this kind of an environment, which is very difficult, obviously. Uh, I mean, gosh, look at that dramatic increase in interest rates obviously some people are being very hurt when i look at this, the the surveys in the states you know the huge percentage of people who don't have a thousand bucks you know in their savings or in canada we have had literally it's relentless is the right word over 50% of canadians are really feeling the squeeze now with inflation with higher interest rates and they, they haven't even renewed their mortgages
3: you know i mean right. <laughs>
0: uh,
4: yeah that's yeah, coming yeah that's coming right? still and
3: you've got the student loan moratorium coming off this as much you know it's maybe worth pausing before we get whichever branch you want to go with this but it's worth pointing out that when we talk particularly about the u.s and u.s statistics we're not being myopic we understand there's a world out there uh and you know and i've actually been beating the drum that it's it's very naive to think that everything could be hunky-dory in the u.s when china is not re- reigniting as hoped when you know japan is a perennial basket case europe is slow. You know. Uh, the Latin American countries are pivoting to, to easier policy because of the trouble they're seeing. You know, it's a global economy, and yes, there's there's a new trend towards deglobalization post COVID and all that, but that that took decades to build. It's not going to be unwound in a couple of years. So there's huge vulnerability, and uh, you know, this is an aspect of American exceptionalism that I would take exception to. And and particularly important for resource investors is that commodities are priced in dollars. So it's not that I don't realize that there's a whole, you know, economy just as large across the pond or, or this, you know, growing dragon in China. I understand that they're very important, but commodities are priced in dollars. And while that is the case, we need to look at things that are going to move the dollar and inversely most commodities. So th- that's why we have conversations like this. But um, sorry, I, I'm not sure where you wanted to go with that, Mike, but I wanted to. Yeah. Because you, we keep coming back to U.S. statistics and people will say, well, don't you realize there's a world? And I say, yes, that's part of the issue. Well, that,
0: that, that's a great point you're making. I mean, you're right. I experienced the same thing. Why are you talking about this? Why you, well, especially being a Canadian, you know, well, let's talk about their economy, too, because if their economy tanks, ours is almost impossible not to tank, you know, and also globally. As you say, the global implications are huge and the dollar implications. I mean, that's a monster debate right now. Um, you know, the, the, the bricks getting together or not, you know, are we going to change the U.S. dollar and the trading system? And, then, and by the way, I make a distinction there between the U.S. dollar as a store of wealth, you know, people thinking of it that way. And in that way, I think we're already seeing the exodus, uh, you know, with more to come, but we're seeing it, people moving out of the U.S. dollar and preferring Bitcoin as, just as an example, or gold as an example, or uh, in, in my case, I prefer oil as an example. You know, I got more faith in oil than I sure do, in uh, the u.s dollar looking at it only from that perspective and but on a trading basis i think you're talking a big as you just said this is a big system it's going to take a number of years if people you know a lot of people for political reasons are hoping the dollar declines forget the pol- uh, the economics it's the politics but where do you, what do you feel about that whole discussion now
3: well as you say there's there's political reasoning and uh you know i'm not above politics myself i'm on the libertarian end of the spectrum and i I have my druthers for how I think things should be done. And I object very much, you know, state interference in the economy. But my role as the independent speculator, as the due diligence guy for my audience is not to, you know, ramble on about politics or try to convince people to save the world my way or, or adopt Loboism or, you know, whatever I believe. My role is to help you make money. And, you know, it's, so again, it's, it's not that I'm, I'm, throwing the ethics out the window. It's that I need to look at what's actually happening in the marketplace, not what I wish would yes. happen. Like like take the the green agenda and the electrification. That is such a huge global trend for all resource investors, affecting everything. You know, the, the least affected might be gold, but even silver is affected because of the solar panels. It's, it is also industrial, not just a monetary metal. So, never mind copper, lithium, and all these other things that are so profoundly impacted by this agenda. So, I, I get pushback from readers as like, "Oh, well, you know, they sh- they shouldn't. Tesla shouldn't even exist. It got government grants and subsidies." And it, you, you, fine, it's true. It never mind that. Our goal isn't to beat up on Tesla or to right all wrongs, like Don Quixote tilting at the windmills. Our goal is to make money, and the fact is that governments around the world are pushing this big time whether they should or they shouldn't they are and you know what it's not just those evil you know dark cloak powers that be behind the hidden curtains the people out there the, our dear beloved fellow brother human beings they want this especially the younger generations these electric cars are popular the consumer wants them whether they should or they shouldn't whether it makes sense or not that is a market reality and so, if your goal is to make money, you can't just say, "Well, I'm going to check out what's happening because of what I want to have happen." That's not how you make money. Uh, I'm going a bit of a rant again for you, Mike, but I, so well, that's a key point. Let me just interrupt for a second because that is—I would say—that's in fact the
0: skill you need as a, as an investor. I mentioned that we did a coming bull market in commodities. Was ex- you've just elaborated exactly why we did that in February of 2020, and it was because doesn't matter what i think about it it doesn't matter that i have concerns that there's no way by the way the electrical grid can handle it uh there's no way as you alluded to just a bit earlier but i mean the lithium the cobalt the you know for evs the copper in every aspect of it you know we're not close to that stuff it doesn't matter if they're going to do it anyways and and That's the right. way you described and, it and, I think and if you had
3: any doubts sorry let me yeah. jump in and agree with you because if it's reasonable to have doubts particularly you have a, a global pandemic, you might think that reason would set in a little bit and they might step back and say, oh, well, this agenda is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's to—it's not just going to cost a bunch of money. It's going to make the global economy less efficient. Ma- you know, maybe we should take a step back and, and settle, deal with the pandemic first. No, they double down. That was all the more reason. To, and then a war. And you think, okay, you know, we're on the, the edge of potential World War Three. There's There's a land war, a kinetic war in Europe, you know, for God's sake. You know, maybe we should take a step back and think about, you know, putting extra burdens on the global economy. No, we're going to double down. This is all the more reason. We've got to have energy independence, right? So all the more reason to...
0: <laughs> well, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite quote, quotes. Sorry, one of my favorite quotes last it. year was John Kerry arriving early, you know, in the Ukraine war and saying, "I hope it doesn't impact our climate change goals."
3: And I'm going, exactly. people are getting bombed. Exactly. So <laughs> anybody who thought that, okay, you know, reason will prevail at yeah. some point or reality will step in and and they will take a step back, uh, clearly they have shown that that's not going to happen. You know, until they push that you know, the train goes off the cliff or, you know, that level of reality, you know, maybe. And you know what? I actually think for all the things that we say can't happen, this this makes me very bullish on the necessary minerals because I I actually think the NIMBY thinking that has plagued the mining industry for so long or the extractive industries in, in general, I think that will cave. I mean, at some point, push will come to shove and people will realize, well, if we want, you know, batteries and solar panels and electric cars, we have to mine the metals yep. that go into these things. And, and I think people will realize in the first place, there's just not enough. We've got to permit these mines, you know, the nice mines, the better companies that, that make an effort to do things in a cleaner way. I think they will get permitted, even in first world countries that really would rather not have that. And the other aspect is if you push all the mines off to the third world you're going to degrade the environment more because there are looser environmental standards in most of those countries. You know, they're making efforts. But it, you know, it's clearly easier to get, uh, let's say, an operation approved that has lower environmental standards in some desperate country in Africa than it is, say, in Canada or never mind in Europe, in Western Europe. So to the savvy investor, again, whose, whose goal isn't to make political points but to make money, You look at the companies that are positioned to benefit from this, um, and and I do think that the green agenda will ultimately trump NIMBY thinking, and we will see projects that currently might seem unpermittable become permittable, and that change in value could be huge. For a speculator here, we're not talking about a, a safe investment. I'm talking about for a speculator to try to position yourself where the wind is blowing, where the where the hockey puck is going, to go, quote your great Canadian philosopher, Wayne Gretzky, right? There, there This is an example of some things in this space where you can see very clearly where that puck is going. And, and I think there's money to be made going there, getting ahead of it.
0: And, and of course, you allude to a, a moment ago, okay, so we should look at what are the minerals that, that they're going to need? So I mentioned copper earlier. I, I may even put that at the top of the list in a way of sort of a can't miss because you're gonna need it no matter what, the electrification, the grid, the EVs, you know, and renewables and all that. Uh, so, but what, what's your list there that you'd keep an eye on that sort of has a real demand surge over a possible supply? We don't have the supplies. That was an awkward way of saying that. We don't right, have the
3: supply. Right, right. Well, I, I actually quite agree with you on copper is absolutely number one, because no matter which technology, even if you go with hydrogen cars, right? That wouldn't have lithium or cobalt or nickel, you know, or as, or as much anyway, you're still going to need the wires, the wiring in the car and the batteries and the charging and, and the electrification writ large that goes with that. The hydrogen cars, I don't think change the overall story. Uh, you know, so, but you know, the hydrogen cars are still kind of an if, I mean, they're coming along and there's people pushing in that, but right now the the, for, for better or for worse, the lithium-ion battery is sort of like the VHS of these technologies. If you yeah. if you understand my metaphor, uh, you've got hair to match my beard. I don't know how much of the audience is with us on this, but Betamax VHF, everybody says that Betamax was the better technology, but somehow VHS got there first. It became the standard. Everybody just adopted it, and that's where we are with lithium-ion batteries. That said, there are changes happening there now, like the, the – um, the LFP batteries are, are really coming in strong and taking greater market share. So that affects your, your nickel and your cobalt. There's still lithium there. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing, but not too much. Point number one was I agree with you about copper. Like, hands down, any circumstance, copper is my number one industrial metal. The other one um, is actually gonna be lithium because the, the alternatives that are most advanced are still lithium something batteries like lithium sodium, lithium iron phosphate, right? There's still lithium something. And that's a more developed advanced technology. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a buyer of lithium ahead of the recession or copper ahead of the recession that I still think is ahead of us. Um, but the other side, I've been I've been late to the game on this because lithium is not rare. Uh, but it is becoming, you know, quite apparent that, you know, on the other side, the, the green agenda is going ahead. The demand will outstrip supply. And it's at least for the investment timeframes I have in mind the next few years, like maybe 10 years from now, supply actually catches up uh, and recycling catches up. But as we build out the fleet of electric cars, I think demand is likely to outstrip supply. And that actually makes me bullish on lithium, more bullish than I've been all along. Um with new understanding. Now, nickel, not so much. Cobalt, not so much. Anything else, we'll see. You know, hydrogen, uh, that will be years before that happens. But the metal implication of hydrogen is platinum. And there's a lot of people hanging their hat on higher platinum prices because of the hydrogen cars. Well, there isn't a hydrogen charging station on the entire island I live on, of Puerto Rico. Like, I, I literally can't buy that car and expect yeah. to drive it. I could look at it as a as a statue in my garage or something but I can, you know and there are a lot of people on that boat until that changes I really don't see I, you know that having any impact meaningful impact on platinum prices. So the one that it leaves me with of other you know sure things is I I like silver quite a bit because it goes into the solar panels and in the near term silver's industrial aspect may hold it back and it may underperform gold. Actually I would say in the balance of this year, I, I think that this gold silver ratio would likely widen because of this. That said, on the other side, silver becomes the, the win-win metal. I think you'll have fear as the recession kicks in that will support the safe haven demand. And then as you exit the recession, you'll have the industrial demand because it is necessary. It's one of these metals, not labeled a critical metal, but it's very central to the, the electrification of the world. Um, so I like silver a lot on the other side. And then when we have not mentioned, I did say, you know, I'm, I'm not keen on, on energy minerals going into the recession. The one exception there is uranium. And I don't know if you want to yes, go down I, that rabbit hole. Honestly, byproduct. that was my next question. I mean, again, okay, we've been... Well, let, let's go there you know. then. Um, you know, even if you want hydrogen cars in the future, you're going to need to get that hydrogen somewhere. And, okay, it can be a byproduct from some gas fields. But in the quantities that we're talking about, you really need something like the Hoover Dam, or a nuclear power station to generate hydrogen is frequently said, and I agree with this view. It's really more of an of an energy storage means than a fuel. Yes, you do burn it; burn it. It is a fuel, but it takes energy to get that hydrogen. It doesn't. You know, you can't just. You know, there's there's no hydrogen geyser that you can just tap. So in most cases, you have to make the hydrogen. You have to put energy into making it so that you can burn it and get the energy back out. Um, And so and I understand that there are also hydrogen fuel cells where you don't burn it, uh, but those have other issues as well. Anyway, the point is you still need to get this hydrogen and that's going to take energy. And I think one of the obvious answers to that is you you can't build the Hoover Dam anywhere. It has to be in a certain place where you can do that, whereas you can build a nuclear power plant anywhere you need the energy. So I like it um, and I don't mean to focus just on the hydrogen, but it's an example of why nuclear is so great. It can provide 24 seven, 365 baseload power, you know, whenever you got to have it for hospitals or airports or whatever, you know, that's the most reliable kind of energy we have. And it's non-carbon emitting. So you combine that with other green technologies and you have a a greener approach to electrification than anything else. So I think nuclear made sense anyway, just Mm -hmm. the global population is growing. We don't like coal anymore. Even gas is a bridge technology. You're still, you know, natural gas. It sounds great. It's natural, right? Well, yeah, but it's still got carbon in it and you burn it. You're still putting that carbon in the atmosphere. So just the global population alone and the reality of places like India and China needing more energy than any amount of of coal, gas, everything could provide them makes nuclear an obvious choice. And then on top of that, you have the ESG agenda providing it multiple tailwinds. So I'm extremely bullish on uranium. I call it my highest confidence trade this year because while there's this appearance that Team Soft Landing may be right, that's a headwind for safe haven assets like gold and silver. So as much as I love gold, I have more questions about gold in the nearest term than than uranium. The other yellow metal this year is actually the one that takes the crown from me for my highest confidence trade. and. The one thing, and I know my fellow uranium bugs hate it when I say this, but I feel I owe it to the audience to always say, um, this presumes no major nuclear incidents. You know, Fukushima was a tsunami, and it was the tsunami that killed the people, not the nuclear power plant, but it still scared people. More important is it would be Chernobyl. Really, Three Mile Island was a nothing burger. Fukushima was a tsunami that caused most of the problems. Chernobyl was the real deal. And if there was something like that now, I do think that would whack uranium prices, that would whack the uranium stocks, no question. They would crater on news like that. So, I think it's important to, to say yes, it's still a speculation. As solid as the thesis seems, and we have, you know, fundamentals of supply and demand and we have technicals. I you know, people are exasperated with uranium over the last year or so, but you look at the long-term chart and it's a, it's a thing of beauty and you've got the narrative, you've got the ESG agenda. We've got Europe pivoting back despite Germany pivoting back to nuclear. And of course, the BRICS country is going gangbusters as fast as it can. So the demand is already there. We don't need to speculate that there will be increasing demand. We can see that now, Mike. The, the, the big risk here would be a, a literal blow up that could blow up your portfolio. And those are rare. As I say, it's really only been Chernobyl, has been the only serious one. And people worry about the Zaporizhia plan in Ukraine, but you know what? I think that thing is a fantastic advertisement for how safe nuclear power is. It's in the middle of a freaking war zone. The thing's been shelled, it's been shot up. You know, all this stuff has happened to it and not a peep out of it. It's done great. So yeah, I'm a bull. And I just I just have to put that one caveat on there. It's, it's a total lightning bolt out of the blue. We'll never know if that might happen until it does. But until it does, and I think it's unlikely, I think the uranium thesis is very solid higher prices. I, you know, I think they're baked in the cake for this year and going forward.
0: Well, and look at Japan returning to, to nuclear as, as an example, you know, obviously Fukushima, but that's, that's their judgment on it. An increase in nuclear power. seems like every week I'm certainly opening up about somebody else, whether it's South Korea, uh, you wrote about Georgia. I wasn't aware of the Georgia nuclear plant coming on, you know, first new plant in uh, the U S in 12 years. I, uh, as you wrote about, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, that demand side is there. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's a core position, actually.
3: I think uranium is a core yeah, position. The, the Japanese thing is really eye-opening because, you know, they they were the one, that Fukushima happened to yeah. them, right? And they shut down all their nukes. And if for them to say, you know what, it, it really is safe. And, you know, we've, we've learned our lessons that, you know, the rest of the plants, you know, we can go there and we have to, and we need to, we need this energy. For them to do that is really striking. And even Germany, which in Europe was the one that most strenuous objections to nuclear power, they did shut down those last three reactors, but they delayed that, which was kind of a a hell freezing over type event. And even Greta Thunberg was telling the Germans that they should keep those plants operating because, you know, the Germans were opening up new coal mines. So, you know, that is, as scary and evil as most people think uranium is, you know, coal has become the absolute yep. devil. That's the, that's the archangel fallen. So, you know, uh, it's really striking. This this is an idea whose time has come again. I, I, I firmly believe that. And I have more uranium in my portfolio now than I ever had. Uh, the only stock on my shopping list right now in the face of the uncertainty of the recession is a uranium stock. Oh sorry, one final point on that. You know, baseload power, Mike, right? Mm-hmm. You know, 24-7, 365. This isn't like deciding, oh well, times are tough. Maybe we don't have to go visit grandma this weekend and, and saving on gas money. This isn't discretionary. So I, I'm not saying that that uranium is going to be entirely recession proof, uh, but it is much more recession resistant than any other energy mineral. And you know, right now the powers that be have done a good job of punting that down the road. So it, it is the one resource speculation right now, because I got a lot of questions about it. There are a lot of things I don't know. Uh, but this one I'm so confident of that I'm, I'm willing to put more money into play right now on a great uranium stock, if I can find what I've missed. Well, as I say, this is a great reason. I want to tell people that you can get a free, you know,
0: the Speculator's Digest is free. Just go to www.independentspeculator.com, www.independentspeculator.com, or follow on Twitter, Twitter due diligence guy, small, small caps, due diligence guy on Twitter. Uh, Lewis, thanks so much. Fabulous stuff.
3: Well, I appreciate you uh, giving me the chance to share what I, what I think about what I do, and, and I encourage people to check it out, and yep. see if they like my way of, of doing business.
0: Time now for this week's shocking stat. You know, in all my years, for all the talk about so-and-so or this person or that isn't paying their fair share, I've never actually come across anyone who says that who actually knows what the rich or the well-to-do pay. Well, we got a new study this week by the Fraser Institute that gives the answer. In a nutshell, the headline, top 20% of income earners, those earning more than $244,000 per year, pay more in income tax than the other 80% of Canadians combined. Now, you can decide if that's enough, if that's their fair share or not, but you should at least know the facts. Now, of course, they do earn the majority of income. But taking that into account, the top earners earn about 46% of all income, but pay over 53% of federal and provincial income tax. That's the only group in Canada that pays a greater percentage of the total Income tax take than the percentage of what they earn. So, in other words, the other 80% of Canadians pay about 43% of total taxes. Canadian families that rank in the bottom 20%, because this is of interest to me, anyways, bottom 20% of income earners, well, they pay 2% of all federal and provincial income taxes, and they receive about 5.1% of total family income. Now, families in the next group, they earn between 59 and 104,000. Well, again, similar formula. They earn about 10% of all income, but pay only 4.6% of all income taxes. Let me complete the picture here. Those families earning between 104000 and 159000 well, they earn 16% of all income, pay 14% of taxes. And finally, again, upper middle class or higher, those in the fourth quintile, 159000 to 244000 well, they earn about 25.5% of all income and pay 25.1% of the tax take. In other words, I'm talking about a progressive tax system. Again, you can decide if the top 20 who earn 46% of all income pay 53% of the income taxes, more than the other 80% combined, you can decide if that's enough, but at least know the context of what we're talking about. I got a feeling I could question any politician who starts mammering on about who's paying their fair share doesn't know those numbers. But here's a really interesting thing. Marketing, uh, Léger Marketing, they found that 58% of Canadians think the top combined federal and provincial personal income tax rate should not exceed 50%. Well, you know what? It does in eight out of the 10 provinces. Only Alberta and Saskatchewan don't have a top rate that exceeds 50%. Other than that, the marginal tax rate, the next dollar you earn, the government takes more than half. Let's talk a little more real estate. And for that, of course, we're thrilled to bring in Ozzy Jurek. Uh, You can find him at ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, let me just say, we've been hearing a lot of numbers. Go across the Canada to get these numbers, that numbers, you know, And I know you look at them all, but there sure seems to be some confusion because there's, you know, if you took it just at the headline value, I think you're going to be uh, somewhat misled.
5: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We see sales are up dramatically, up 29%, up 50%. Well, it's true. If you took Vancouver as an example, single-family homes are up 29% over July 2022. However, with the 456 measly sales that we had this July, If you compare them against July 2021, we had 1,050. So we're still over 50% below what we were in 2021. And if you add to that, that think of a new listings are up 9% in single-family homes, 20% in condo, in the Fraser Valley, new condo listings are up 28%. It's not all roses uh, when you look at the numbers very quickly.
0: Well, I I was thinking of you when I see some of the numbers coming out of the U.S., for example, because you warned about this like six months ago you said no way people are going to leave the mortgage they've got if they have to renew at a higher thing because they're selling, you know, and going into a new property. And that certainly had a dramatic impact. It looks like, you know, on values that way that people are saying, well, I'm still sitting on a two and a half percent five year mortgage with maybe two years left or three years left. You know, I'm not moving into something else if I have to renegotiate again. So uh, again, that's sort of restricts how many uh, properties on the market. That's one variable only, of course, but, you know, properties on the market. But I think it adds to what you're saying here, which is, you know, we got to go a little deeper into the numbers if you want to see the health of the market in different regions.
5: Yeah, if you measure your your reasonable market today against a very anemic market against last year, we look good. One thing is clear, though, the July price achieved in both condos and single family home right across the board are the best in the last four years. Not the best price ever, but the best price for July. So in soybeans and single-family home, in February was a million nine, went down to a million three in December last year, and now it's a million five. So it's much better than it was in December, but it's still not the all-time high. Uh, Let me
0: come to another issue here, because, uh, you know, as I was talking to Mike Moffitt earlier, I mean, and, you know, it's a a hobby horse for me, but one that I think is going to create profound change or distress in the country, and that is the shortage of affordable housing, but especially the shortage of rents, uh, you know, that are affordable for people, uh, you know, given the population surge, all of those things we've been talking about, though, too. So you're going to see a whole variety of uh, remedies, like we saw from the federal housing whatever they call them, appointee or whatever, who's looking into it, you know, rent controls. Uh, we had uh, Jagmeet Singh, NDP leader, talking about subsidized mortgages, which, you know, I think analysts agree is not particularly a good idea. But here's the other one. You're going to see it, you know, there's going to be this big cry for, they want to increase density. So you've seen it in certain areas. And I know I was looking out in Victoria because that made it so noteworthy. And they said, hey, you know, if you want to develop on your own residential property, go ahead. But it's not that straightforward.
5: Well, they call it the middle housing policy. So in other words, we're going to create a lot more units because we let you build a sixplex on that single family lot. They brought it in as a law. It's not a plan. It's a law. You can do it right now as of January 1. However, since January 1, Victoria has had uh, zero application.
0: <laughs> well, that may tell us something in that in that <laughs> yeah. regard. But again, you're going to find ideas like this floated throughout the country because obviously in Hamilton and uh, Toronto and Montreal, you know, so many urban centers, you got a problem. And of course, uh, as we predicted on this show, so I'll take a minute and pat us on the back, we like that Calgary and that Edmonton market to rise coincident with the rise and strength in the oil and energy markets. Well, that seems to have happened. So, you know, they may face this very quickly. But my my point being, so they'll take an idea like this and run with it in other parts of the country. But as you said, nobody seemed too keen on the idea when it came to putting it in practice.
5: Well, because they look at what is involved. Parking hasn't been regulated. The, The onerous requirements it cumbersome is the word and in fact it's enough for people not wanting to do it now Vancouver remember Mike has this single family density plan and I was talking to Frank O'Brien from the Western Investor and he said he had several Western Westside homeowners saying gee uh, what, what is exactly involved now you and I have talked about that, that in, in, at length that the capital gains tax exemption is under attack well this plan on creating a sixplex on a on a single family home by taking mm-hmm. away all single family zoning means capital gains on residential property. It means property taxes. It means GST on building. It means building permits. It melts such a cost that probably the government makes more money than the owners on the initiative. <laughs> so be very, very careful. Take this as a warning. Before you do that, you probably get a sharp stick and poke yourself in the eye. You'll be better off. Well, I
0: was going to say, the government's making more money on this than maybe the person who owns the property. That sounds like gasoline. Well, there you go. I can't help myself with that, pardon me, mm-hmm. but the I, I, point is well taken. I mean, these things, it's, it's not going to be easy, as Mike Moffat was saying. We're not looking for easy solutions, but you really got to look into these solutions carefully because the implications, as you said, tax especially jumps out at me right away, uh, you know, also other things like the property tax and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's not quite so straightforward and certainly it's not going to be uh, timely uh, with all the hoops you'd have to jump through at this point. Ozzy, as I say, there's never going to be a shortage of this stuff because this is going to be one of the dominant themes socially in this country. It has been, but we've done nothing about it, so it's going to get exacerbated. In the meantime, I hope you go out and have a terrific week.
5: Thanks, Mike. And we're talking in our house. I try to teach our kids, you know, about taxes and income and so on. And I find the best way to teach your kids about taxes by eating 30% of their ice cream. (laughs) That's
0: right. You want to see the tax date. Ozzy, have a great week let's go live to the trading desk i'm going to bring victor adair in with me you know vic i was thinking about something you said it was about three weeks ago you remember when microsoft announced uh that if you used its microsoft ai you were getting charged for it and as you said at the time that's the first person who jumped out first company that says i'm going to monetize this big ai trend at that time and you talked about the stock going up immediately. And you said, but you know what? I'm watching for other signs. I'm not using that as my only confirmation that maybe this was a bit of a peak experience there. So I want an update on that.
4: Well, specifically, their market cap increased by $100 billion in an hour. A lot of the companies that are listed on the S&P don't have that much market cap in the first place so i call it the cherry on top you know the the stock market the 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 stock market cap increased by that much and then it was all gone within a few hours later and since then i have been selectively trading the stock market from the short side i have to say the s p 500 monthly close on july here was the highest we've seen since december of 2021 and i think the market mood This week, after we got through Monday, has definitely turned a little negative. Uh, Stock prices are down in all all of the different sectors. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just now it's also August. So so there's there's that.
0: (laughs) Uh, Did you think that Apple's sort of weakness was significant? Do you look at stuff like that?
4: I do. I mean, Apple reported the quarterly on uh, Thursday, uh, the stock dropped on Friday to a six week low. You know, there's an old saying about when the generals are starting to stumble. And uh, as we've talked so many times the, the rally this year, certainly off the October lows of last year, has been led by the mega cap stock. Companies uh, now. Amazon, by the way, was good. So you know, it's a mixed bag. It's choppy. It's August, and you know, liquidity's not there. But the mood, to me, seems to have gone a little negative here. So that means stocks are lower. We've seen bond yields jump higher. Uh, you know, and um, the U.S. dollar has got a bid now. Uh, again, it's choppy. It's short-term stuff.
0: But uh, back to the bond, just quickly, describe what you've seen in the bond market. I mean, because there seemed to be least you know, significant movement there.
4: Yeah, well, the bonds, uh, you know, the yields fell during the banking crisis. Let's call it back in March. OK, uh, but since the beginning of April or so, the bond yields have been steadily going higher and they've accelerated higher the last two weeks or so. Certainly, we're seeing the Treasury is going to be issuing a hell of a lot more bonds. Okay, yes. I mean, if, if that's a technical term, there's a lot, a tidal wave of bonds coming, and uh, you know, I think the market's bracing for that. Fitch, of course, downgraded U.S. bonds on somewhere earlier in the week, and then midweek we had some very strong employment numbers. So, the bond market's been a little skittish, but I think that despite this issuance tidal wave coming. That there's, uh, we saw Friday the bond market actually reversed higher. I think that might be a little bit of a flight to quality buying. Uh, you know, people can put money into a money market fund, that's short term stuff, but people can also go to, into the bond market if they're looking for some alternative to the stock market.
0: Okay, and let me finish with this. Uh, I, again, I know I'm, I'm bouncing around, but these are the things people care about. And in this country, we care about oil prices.
4: Yeah, well, WTI crude oil was struggling, uh, you know, in the mid 60s in uh, May and June. It's been on a on a almost a perpetual rally since then throughout July, certainly. And we're above eighty three dollars here at the end of the week. You know, that's been a supply demand uh, picture. And it appears as though, you know, the supply in inventories around the world, but particularly in the United States, is low. Demand is there, and uh, on the production side, Russia and the OPEC countries, you know, continue to talk about reducing their production. So, yeah, oil up, stocks down, not a
0: happy world. There, <laughs> there you go. Well, I hope you have a happy weekend. And I will tell people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca, lots of charge, lots of stuff up there. Vic, thanks so much for taking the time, and I hope you do indeed. Have a great week. Well, thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And you got to appreciate how I look at, but it doesn't matter the economy or society, what I'm monitoring is the declining confidence in government and its institution. Because it is a major driver, the major driver, I think, of changes. And it could be in the economy, financial markets, and certainly in society. I mean, that's why on Money Talks, by the way, we were virtually alone in predicting that Brexit would go through or that Donald Trump would be elected in 2016. It was part of understanding this massive anti-establishment trend. Also worrying me was we also called for the rise in both division but violence in society. And that's so evident today. And I think it's going to end up, by the way, at the end of the decade with maybe a very different form of government. I'm not so keen on that but certainly the disintegration of some specific countries. Now, you may disagree, by the way, but I like my chances on that. And that brings me to this week's Goofy. You know, one of the things I think about regularly is what would drive that trend further to that end point? My answer in a few words, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Come on, out of 332 million people in the US, most powerful country in the world, and the odds are right now, those are the two most likely candidates to run for president next year. Are you? Ki- I mean, really? I sit there and go, "Are you kidding me?" How can that not push even more cynicism about politics in the U.S. to have that the choice? Come on, these are two deeply flawed candidates. Different reasons. I mean, look at Trump; he's facing all those legal problems, and now we're talking about Biden's son. But we also have questions you know, other questions about maybe his uh, declining mental competence. I'm sorry, I'm careful about that. But I think my point is only that, come on, both of them, that's the best and the brightest that country has to offer. You know, it's incredible. I mean, I, I, I know that there's, but it's part of a bigger picture. I mean, right now you've got, You know, partisans questioning judicial system, the FBI, those kinds of things. And, you know, are these the two people who are going to rescue that? Well, obviously, I think that's a big stretch. And I'm not trying to debate the merits of the accusations or legal problems surrounding Trump, for example, the other issues surrounding Biden. I'm simply pointing out this. I think those two as the candidates are going to erode confidence in the political system that a contest between those two is going to exacerbate those trends if they indeed are the ones who run in 2024. And here's the other side. I don't care which side wins. I think there's a high probability that neither side would accept the outcome if their candidate loses. I can't do justice to it in just a couple of minutes, but I think you get the gist of what I'm saying. Is that I can't think of two candidates who would expedite the decline in confidence in government faster. And that's the important picture. That's all the time we have this week, but I do want to remind you, and I I, I want to first say this, I sincerely appreciate when I get notes from people saying uh, they recommended money talks to their friends, they recommended going to money talks tweets, or they recommended going to Michael Campbell's money talks on Facebook, or they say, hey, listen to the show, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. And the other side I'd say is while you're there, why not sign up for five minutes with Mike? Uh, we're having fun with it, but we're getting a lot of good feedback about it also. You know, we just send out little snippets or highlights, etc. So absolutely free. That's the right price. Uh, just go to Mike's Money Talks, five minutes with Mike. In the meantime, look, I hope you have a terrific long weekend and a terrific week during the summer. Thanks for listening. <music>